Hello students, let me now tell you about the Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is an autosomal dominant genetic condition that can affect movement and cognition and is progressive and fatal. It results from genetic mutations involving trinucleotide repeats of the Huntington gene which encodes the Huntington protein. So what is the history behind the Huntington disease? Huntington disease as I told you is a new neurodegenerative genetic condition that can affect the, the moment and cognition and is a progressive one and fatal as well. It is obtained its epinom from George Huntington presented an exhaustive descriptive of the clinical manifestation of the disease in 1872. So what is the clinical manifestation of the Huntington disease. Huntington disease has three subtypes with the adult onset being the most common and the juvenile and infantile varieties being far less prevalent. In the adult onset, the disease is characterized by a triad of behavioral, cognitive and motor features. Behavioral symptoms often present early as increased irritability, agitation, loss of inhibition and increased aggression. In a patient without a definite family history, definite diagnosis with these symptoms is often delayed. However, diagnosis is often easier with evidence of motor symptoms. These include chorea, which can become less pronounced with the onset of rigidity and dyskinesia. Motor impersistence, which is the inability to maintain a sustained voluntary muscle contraction and there is loss of fine and gross motor skills, which respectively occur in the early and late phase of diseases. In general, the Huntington disease is a devastating and relentlessly progressive disease, which is fatal within 15 to 20 years of the onset. What are the functions of the Huntington gene? It is widely expressed in many cell types with a preferential expression in the brain and testis and to a lesser extent in the liver and lungs. Its distribution in the brain is variable with high amounts present in the corpus striatum and the cerebral and the cerebellar, cerebellar cortices. This protein has the anti-apoptotic role and the cells with mutant or decreased expression of Huntington which undergoes early cell dysfunction and thereby death. The expansion of the cytosine, adenine and the guanine 
which is represented as the CAG repeats, causes increased polyglutamine in the Huntington gene with the CAG corresponding to the 3 DNA basis, cytosine adenine guanine. This leads to the formation of the abnormal nuclear and the cytoplasmic intracellular inclusion and aggregates which dysregulates the cell homeostasis and promotes the cell death thereby. What is the significance of the Huntington protein? The normal Huntington protein has fewer than 27 CAG repeats that encodes for the polyglutamine. The individuals with the CAG repeats of 27 to 35 will not manifest the disease. That is, the 27 to 35 intermediate alleles will not manifest this disease. Though the intermediate alleles possess the potential to expand into an allele range of greater than 36 in the subsequent generations. Those with greater than 36 CAG repeats are affected with the Huntington disease and will definitely manifest the disease. The greater number of the CAG repeats, the earlier is the onset of the disease. With each generation, there is an increase in the CAG triplet expansion leading to the anticipation of the disease. Thus, the patients with infantile and the juvenile onset, the Huntington disease will possess a larger number of the repeats in their alleles and earlier onset compared with their parents from whom they inherited this disease. So, let us see what is the significance of the intermediate alleles and the role of the gender or sex. The intermediate alleles containing the CAG repeat, that is, the cytosine, adenine, and the guanine repeat of this 27 to 35 shows a greater degree of instability and the propensity for expansion during the spermatogenesis compared with the oogenesis. Thus, a male with the intermediate allele has a higher probability of producing an offspring with the Huntington disease alleles containing less than 36 CAG repeats than a female with an intermediate allele. In addition, the juvenile onset of the Huntington disease and infantile Huntington disease have a higher percentage of parental inheritance compared with the maternal inheritance. What is the diagnostic testing that has been done to identify the Huntington disease? In individuals with stronger familial history of the Huntington disease and the evidence of appropriate symptoms, genetic testing is often unnecessary. 
However, in situations in which the diagnosis is not apparent or a positive family history is unavailable, negative testing results can conclusively rule out the disease and allow the pursuit of alternative di differential diagnosis. So, Huntington disease is the most widely studied genetic neurodegenerative diseases that has available diagnosis or diagnostic and predictive genetic testing with the possibility of gene targeted therapy and valuable insight is been provided by genetic researchers in the Huntington disease. So the Huntington disease is to do more about the Huntington protein and if you're clear about the Huntington protein and the role of the Huntington gene with respect to the Huntington protein, it's all to do about the Huntington disease. Hope I am clear and if you have any clarifications, please do post in our group. Thank you so much. Dear students, this talk focuses on the stroke, a brain attack. Brain, as we all know, is a vital organ. And when there is an attack to, to the brain, let's see what happens to it and what are the consequences of the brain attack as well. So, the stroke, which is a familiar term, is the fourth leading cause of death in the world and a leading cause of the adult disability. So, what is a stroke? A stroke or brain attack occurs when a blood clot blocks an artery or a blood vessel breaks interrupting blood flow to an area of the brain. When either of these things happens, brain cells begin to die and brain damage occurs. When brain cells die during a stroke, abilities controlled by that area of the brain are lost. These abilities include speech, movement and memory. So this is a brief note on what is a stroke. And in this talk, we would be detailing about the different classes of stroke, its signs and symptoms, the pathophysiology, management and the diagnosis as well. Let's move on to the two major classes of stroke. The ischemic stroke and the hemorrhagic stroke. Now let's see what is ischemic stroke. In everyday life, blood clotting is beneficial. You know that. When you're bleeding from a wound, blood clot works to a slow and eventually it stops the bleeding. 
But in the case of stroke, blood clots are dangerous because they can block the arteries and cut off the blood flow. And this process is called the ischemia. An ischemic stroke can occur in two ways, embolic and thrombotic. Let's see what is an embolic stroke. In an embolic stroke, a blood clot forms somewhere in our body and it's usually the heart and travels through the bloodstream to your brain. And in your brain, the clot eventually travels to a blood vessel, usually it's small, enough to block its passage. The clot lodges there, blocking the blood vessel and causing a stroke. The medical word that has been used for this is called embolus and the process is embolism. Let's see what is a thrombotic stroke. Here the blood flow is impaired because of the blockage to one or more of the arteries supplying to the brain. The process leading to this blockage is known as thrombosis. Strokes caused in this way are called as the thrombotic strokes. That's because the medical word for a clot that forms on the blood vessel deposit is the thrombus. No wonder the thrombotic stroke. Blood clot strokes can also happen as a result of unhealthy blood vessels, clotted with a buildup of fatty deposits and cholesterol. So your body reacts to these injuries just as it could happen if you were bleeding from a wound. It responds by forming a clot. Two types of thrombosis can cause stroke, large vessel thrombosis and small vessel disease or it is referred to as the lacunar infarction. So what is this large vessel thrombosis? The thrombotic stroke occurs most often in the large arteries. So the large vessel thrombosis is the most common and the best understood type of the thrombotic stroke. Most large vessel thrombosis is caused by a combination of long-term atherosclerosis followed by a rapid blood clot formation. Thrombotic stroke patients are also likely to have the coronary artery disease and heart attack is a frequent cause of death in patients who suffer from this type of brain attack. In contrast, the small vessel disease or the lacunar infarction occurs when blood flow is blocked to a very small arterial vessel. The term origin is from a Latin word lacuna which means a hole and describes the small cavity remaining 
after the products of deep infarct have been removed by other cells in the body so this is about the lacuna infarction let's see about the hemorrhagic stroke strokes caused by the breakage or blow out of a blood vessel in the brain are called the hemorrhagic strokes the medical word for this type of breakage is hemorrhage hemorrhages can be caused by a number of disorders which affect the blood vessels including long standing high pressure and cerebral aneurysm so what is this aneurysm an aneurysm is a weak or thin spot on a blood vessel wall these weak spots are usually present at birth aneurysms develop over a number of years and usually don't cause detectable problems until they break there are two types of hemorrhagic strokes subarachnoid and intracerebral in an intracerebral hemorrhage bleeding occurs from the vessels within the brain itself hypertension is the primary cause of this type of hemorrhage in a subarachnoid hemorrhage an aneurysm bursts in the large artery on or near the thin delicate membrane surrounding the brain blood spills into the area around the brain which is filled with a protective fluid causing the brain to be surrounded by blood contaminated fluid so this is all about the hemorrhagic stroke and the two types of the hemorrhagic stroke that is the subarachnoid and the intracerebral kind now let's see about the various signs and symptoms of the strokes the symptoms of the strokes depend on what part of the brain is been damaged in some cases a person may not even be aware that he or she has had a stroke symptom usually develop suddenly and without any warning or they may occur on and off for the first day or two symptoms are usually most severe when the stroke first happens but they may slowly get worse a headache may a headache may occur especially if the stroke is caused by bleeding in the brain the headache starts suddenly and may become severe occurs when lying flat wakes up from sleep gets worse when you change positions or when you bend strain or cough other symptoms depends on the severity of the stroke and what part of the brain is affected symptoms may include change in alertness including sleepiness unconsciousness and coma changes in hearing changes in taste clumsiness confusions loss of memory difficulty in uh, swallowing difficulty writing or reading dizziness 
or abnormal sensation of movements otherwise you know called as vertigo then um, lack of control over the bladder or bowel loss of balance loss of coordination muscle weakness in the face arm or legs numbness or tingling on one side of the body personality mood or emotional changes problems with eyesight including decreased vision double vision or total loss of vision sensational changes that affect touch and ability to feel pain pressure different temperatures or other stimuli trouble in speaking or understanding trouble in walking as well so these are the symptoms which depends on the severity of the stroke and where or which part of the brain it has been affected so let's see the pathophysiology of the stroke a stroke occurs when the blood flow to an area of the brain is interrupted resulting in some degree of permanent neurological damage the two major categories are the ischemic and hemorrhagic which has been already detailed to you so ischemic lack of blood and hence oxygen to an area of the brain is also been lacking and hemorrhagic bleeding from a burst or leaking blood vessel in the brain so we'll have to deal it separately pathophysiology of the ischemic stroke the common pathway of the ischemic stroke is the lack of the sufficient blood flow to perfuse cerebral tissue due to narrowed or blocked arteries leading to or within the brain ischemic strokes can be broadly subdivided into thrombotic and embolic strokes narrowing is common and it it results due to atherosclerosis the occurrence of the fatty plaques lining the blood vessels as the plaques grow in size the blood vessels becomes narrowed down and the blood flow to the area beyond is reduced damaged areas of an atherosclerotic plaque can cause a blood clot to form which blocks the blood vessel a thrombotic stroke in an embolic stroke blood clot or debris from the elsewhere in your body typically the heart valves travel through the circulatory system and blocks narrower blood vessels based on the etiology of the ischemic stroke the more accurate subclassification is generally used larger artery disease where the atherosclerosis of the large vessels including the internal carotid artery vertebral artery basilar artery and other major branches of the circle of willis smaller vessel disease changes due to chronic disease such as diabetes hypertension hyperlipidemia and smoking that leads to decreased compliance of arterial walls and narrowing and occlusion of the lumen 
of smaller vessels. Embolic stroke, the most common cause of an embolic stroke is arterial fibrillation. Stroke of determined etiology such as inherited diseases, metabolic disorders and coagulopathies. Strokes of undetermined etiology after exclusion of all the above mentioned. In the core area of the stroke where the blood flow is so drastically reduced that cells usually cannot recover and subsequently undergo cellular death, the tissue in the region bordering the infarct core known as the ischemic numera is less severely affected. This region is rendered functionally silent by reduced blood flow but remains metabolically active. Cells in the area are endangered but not yet irreversibly damaged. They may undergo apoptosis after several hours or days but if the blood flow and oxygen delivered is restored shortly after the There are few important steps of ischemic cascade. Without adequate blood supply and thus lack of oxygen, brain cells lose their ability to produce energy, particularly the ATP. Cells in the affected area switch to anaerobic metabolism, which leads to a lesser production of ATP, but release the byproduct called the lactic acid. Lactic acid is an irritant which has the potential to destroy cells by disruption of the normal acid-base balance of the brain. So the ATP-reliant ion transport pump fails causing the cell membrane to become depolarized leading to a large influx of ions including calcium and an efflux of potassium. Intracellular calcium levels become too high and trigger the release of the excitatory amino acid neurotransmitter glutamate. The glutamate stimulates the AMPA receptors and the calcium permeable NMDA receptors which leads to even more calcium influx into the cells. Excess calcium entry overexcites cells and activates the proteases, lipases and the free radicals formed as a result of the ischemic cascades in a process called excitotoxicity. As the cell membranes is broken down by the phospholipases, it becomes more permeable and more ions and harmful chemicals enter the cells. Mitochondria break down, releasing toxins and apoptotic factors into the cells. 
cells experiences apoptosis if the cells dies through the necrosis it releases glutamate and toxic chemicals into the environment around it toxin poisons near nearby neurons and glutamate can overexcite them the loss of vascular structural integrity results in a breakdown of the protective blood brain barrier and contributes to the cerebral edema which can cause the secondary progression of the brain injury so this is the important steps of the ischemic cascade so let's see about the pathophysiology of the hemorrhagic stroke hemorrhagic strokes are due to the rupture of a blood vessel leading to compression of brain tissues from an expanding hematoma this can distort the injured tissues in addition the pressure may lead to a loss of blood supply to affected tissues with resulting infarction and the blood released by a brain hemorrhage appearing to have direct toxic effects on brain tissues and vasculature when we have to deal with the hemorrhagic stroke we'll have to see the intracerebral hemorrhage separately and the subarachnoid arachnoid hemorrhage separately so the intracerebral hemorrhage caused by a rupture of blood vessel and accumulation of blood within the brain this is a commonly where the result of the blood vessel damage from the chronic hypertension vascular malformations or the use of medications associated with increased bleeding rates such as anticoagulants thrombolytics and antiplatelet agents and the subarachnoid hemorrhage is a gra- gradual collection of blood in the subarachnoid space of the brain dura typically caused by trauma to the head or rupture of the cerebral aneurysm so this is about the pathophysiology of the hemorrhagic stroke now looking into the risk factors of the stroke there are two types of risk factors the controllable and the uncontrollable one the controllable risk factors generally fall into two categories that is the lifestyle risk factors or the medical risk factors lifestyle risk factors can often be changed while medical risk factors can usually be treated so both types can be managed uh, when we work with a you know a team of uh, doctors and uh, you know with a prescribed medication and adopting a good healthy lifestyle uncontrollable risk factors include over 55 years of age being a male you know and then um, having a history family history of stroke a transient ischemic attack so these are the uncontrollable risk factors and controllable risk factors are high blood pressure arterial fibrillation high cholesterol 
diabetes, atherosclerosis, circulation problem, tobacco use, alcohol use, physical inactivity and obesity. So these are the risk factors and um, well um, we'll have to know about one more terminology which is a transient ischemic attack. So transient ischemic attack is an event where it's called as a mini stroke with stroke symptoms that last for less than 24 hours and it uh, before disappearing and generally it do not cause permanent brain damage there are serious warning of a sign of stroke and it should not be ignored and uh, once um, you get this particular transient ischemic uh, attack you have to be a bit more careful and within two days of a transient ischemic attack, 5% of people will have a stroke in future. Within three months after a transient ischemic attack, 10 to 15% will have a stroke. So it's a kind of indication. So what are the symptoms of the transient ischemic attack is? A stroke basically... Um, this particular stroke may experience one or more of the following symptoms, sudden numbness or weakness of the face, arm or leg, especially on one side of the body, sudden confusion, trouble in speaking or understanding, sudden trouble in seeing in one or both of the eyes, sudden trouble walking, dizziness, loss of balance or coordination. So if... Uh, you have any of these symptoms or any anyone else experience such a symptom for a very short time you can address uh, you know medical emergency and um, the uh, ne next let's move on to the diagnosis of the stroke so stroke diagnosis is relatively straightforward and it uh, requires rapid combination of medical personnel, technology and uh, treatment uh, as well. So the neurological examination has to be done right away and it includes awareness and consciousness, speech, language and memory function, vision and eye movement has to be diagnosed immediately, sensation and movement in the face, arms and legs has to be done reflexes and walking and uh, sense of balance has to be computed right away and uh, there are uh, many other diagnostic uh, measures that could be um, has been evidenced for example the computed tomographic scan there is a ct scan then uh, the lumbar punctures mri transcranial doppler there is a tcd cerebral angiography electrocardiogram transthoracic electrocardiogram, leg ultrasound. Then for the blood test, you can um, diagnose for the high cholesterol, diabetes, blood clotting disorders. So these are the various diagnostic tests that has been under, undertaken. And further moving on to the treatment. Uh, generally, the treatment of the uh, stroke is given in the um, by the following ways. Surgical treatment, drug therapy and the rehabilitation therapy. Surgical, it depends on the severity of the stroke. Um, um, so, 
it depends on what type of the stroke what type of aneurysm is taking place and um, drug therapy generally referred for uh, aspirin and um, drug therapies herbal drug therapy uh, like um, garlic has been recommended turmeric ginger spinach and all those things are recommended for uh, stroke however allopathic medicines are uh, been um, a i mean it's it's uh, generally referred one in addition to this foods containing uh, functional attributes is uh, recommended as a palliative care so uh, this is all about uh, stroke and uh, if uh, stroke is managed well you can definitely manage the problem thereby thank you so much